Matters, the Drum Network's new podcast series that delves into hot topics amongst agency leaders. I'm Julie Cohen, founder and CEO of Creative Agency Across the Pond, and this episode is all about the real human cost of pitching. I'm joined by Blair Enns, founder and CEO of Win Without Pitching, the sales training and coaching organization for creative professionals. Thanks so much for doing this with me, Blair. Oh, it's my pleasure, Julie. I'm really looking forward to this. Good, me too. So just for context, uh, Across the Pond is a global independent creative agency specializing in helping tech brands create a better world by making a complex human. And we have been disciples of yours, Blair, as you know, for a long time, for, um, since I saw you maybe five years ago at the IPA Business Growth Conference back in 2017. And having worked with you over the years and many times, we're now pitch free for five years and counting. And I do talk a lot about our own no pitch policy at Across the Pond and how it's more than just a policy, but a part of agency culture. And I get questions and comments from other Drive Network members and peers a lot. So I thought it would be, well, it's really exciting to have you here to discuss it all with. So I thought it'd be fun to start with our why, sort of why we're both here. So Blair, will you tell us what exactly is Win Without Pitching? And why did you start this business helping creative firms win business without pitching? And did you ever pitch? And what led you to this? Yeah. First, I love that you say you're five years of pitch free. It's like an addict, right? You're showing up to the monthly meeting. Uh, that's great. Exactly. Uh, so Win Without Pitching, I founded 20 years ago this year as originally as an independent uh, consulting business, just me. We help agencies win new business at higher margin and lower cost of sale without giving their thinking away for free first. So we wean them. I, I often say we're in the deprogramming business. We deprogram them of their own need to pitch. And we work with largely independent creative firms around the world to help them get better at getting new business. In terms of the why, why do I do this? Well, number one, there's a there's a massive demand for it. 20 years in, my kids will never go hungry. But if you want to get to the Simon Sinek version of like why, the deeper why, like I always think of, uh, I usually think of a designer. So I think of an, as a young creative who decides that they want to make their passion their business and they become an entrepreneur. And they get into this business, whether it's design, advertising, some other form of creative business, but those are the two main categories I think of because it's their passion. And then they discover that, oh, in addition to doing their craft, now as a business owner, they have to do these other things, some of which, many of which they're not very good at initially, and some of which they don't like. And one of those things that they're typically not good at and they don't like is selling. So I always imagine this, this creative person standing in a room in front of a prospective client trying to sell what it is that she does. And she's like out of her domain here. She's not comfortable with it, doesn't know how to do it, doesn't like it. I really identify with creatives, having spent the early part of my career in ad agencies and design firms. And I've built this business to help that person in that moment. Excellent. Right. That makes sense. Did you ever pitch yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was so much fun. Like when you're young, 
And you're working in an ad agency in particular. In the early days of a creative firm, it's like a rock and roll tour bus. It is so much fun. And the pitch and those late nights, uh, that's part of the fun. And then one day you wake up and you look in the mirror. As a business owner, you think, I'm tired of having fun. I want to make some money. I want to get off this rock and roll tour bus before I start to look like Keith Richards. I had that moment in my 30s, and I was not an owner of an agency. It's something about my personality. I just didn't like the fact that we were always forced to audition when there were times when like, I felt like we were the stars. And here we are, we're auditioning like everybody else. So I had that moment in my 30s, but other people, you know, they're in their 40s, 50s, maybe 60s before they have that moment. And if you're not the business owner, you may never have that moment. You might love like dying the rock and roll death in the end and going out in a blaze of glory. But if you are the business owner, that powerlessness and the startup culture and the trading money for fun, that gets old at some point. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I guess sort of similarly, well, my why, sort of why we stopped pitching, why we were ready for you, I guess, when I saw you speak the first time, you shared your four steps to winning without pitching. And then I read your manifesto and it just made so much sense. I couldn't unknow those like true statements and this idea that we can maintain a level of dignity and mutual respect and professionalism and our own work-life balance and all the practices that we're used to that we know as experts and what we do is how to get to the best work. Um, and I first, so we, we stopped, it was relatively, well, we can talk about challenges later, but it was relatively easy to get my senior team on board with it right away because it's just so exciting and everybody loves saying it to clients. You know, it raises eyebrows and gets a lot of attention which we should also talk about more. But I guess at first I thought about it more as a commercial decision and sort of morale. But over the years, I've come to realize that it's so much more than just a practice or a policy and that not pitching is so much a part of our culture and across the pond. So, so I think as soon as we started doing it, it felt like like a gift to be saying and we're, we're taking back control of our work lives and thus our home lives and free to work on, you know, just the way that we want. So upholding it began to feel like we'd committed to our people rather than a policy. There's just so much, there's so many threads there that I want to pull on, if you'll let me. Please. So for, first, you not only embrace this idea that you can win without pitching, you made it a policy, which is like going a step farther than we typically advocate. I, I love it when people do, when firms do, but it's very rare that a firm of the size and success level of across the pond will make a public declaration. I mean, you, you've made this from stages and then you, obviously you make it in conversations with clients and prospective clients that as a matter of policy, you do not pitch. What made you do just like close the door completely and forever? Yeah, I, that's a good, good question. Cause I think a lot about why, and you told me, you don't have to lead with it, Julie, you don't need it <laughs> You're marketing on your website, but it just felt so much a part of us that it, it was just like very natural to say it. And I feel driven to talk about it publicly because despite the fact that I know it's not going to win us business, that is not why I say it out loud. So we're explaining how we want to work and be treated and treat others inside and outside the business. So it feels natural. And I'm not 
I often try, you know, tell people like if my team get excited and they want to like shout about it and they forget that this is not a new business thing. I'm not trying to drive a crusade to get people to stop or make it good versus evil, agencies versus clients at all. But I like the idea of sharing with the industry that it is possible and that it's not easy, but it is possible and so rewarding and kind of fun. And so there's also that. You said there, there are cultural implications that you, even you didn't foresee. The other, the other comment or observation I would make about what you said is that you said your, your senior leadership team bought in early on. That's not always the case. Um, when firms get above a certain size and the leadership get, team gets larger, there are often holdouts that need to convert and uh, they they fight the approach or, or they end up leaving. Did you lose some key people over this policy decision? No, nobody. I think generally people feel really good about it and the confidence that it gives us and, and, and also recruiting, especially now with however we want to phrase the great resignation, reshuffle, mental health crises, the world today and, you know, the dearth of talent. When we've hired a lot in the past 12 months and every single person who comes in you know, mentions this because they've seen it in our social media, on our website and and stuff about our culture, which it's so tied in with. And, and they all love it. And they're so excited about it. So interested in it. What, what does happen once in a while, some of them come and they're like, oh, right, this is hard. And it is so hard. And that's one of the biggest challenges for us, which it's a very different way of working. And as humans, we just like so prone to rely on the deck and the presentation. And we have this sort of methodology around how to get to work and work hard. And this is hard work in a totally different way, but everybody is on board. And I, I mean, I think I have you and lots of your trainings to thank for that. And also people who've embraced it really well. And the, the thrill of winning without pitching when we do is like gold. So when that yeah. happens, it's a, it's a real relief and that's happening now. Yeah, as an observation, I would say that like your global managing director bought in and is the internal win without pitching champion, right? And if that doesn't happen at somebody at that senior level of the organization, then you run into trouble. But I've, I've worked with firms about the size of Across the Pond where the ownership team, so two individuals, thinking of one firm in particular, were completely bought in. And they were determined to change the culture of the firm. And through training and coaching and other advisory services, there's progress, progress, progress. But I remember this one moment. Here I was working with these seniors, many gray-haired professionals, highly educated, highly paid experts in their domain. They were embracing the training. And then along came like just a massive opportunity. And the, this, this, the, uh, the visibility of it, if this project ever went ahead, would be massive. The amount of money at stake was massive and they lost everything. They, all the training went out the door and everything. So this is speaking to your issue of this becomes a, an issue of culture. Culture starts at the top. So it's important that we have the people at the top bought in and if, if you're going to take this approach. But then the next layer down, when somebody put a stack of, of millions of dollars on the table, they just lost it and def defaulted back to the old way. And that's when I realized as as an outside advisor thinking, hey, we're making real progress here. That's when I realized, oh, this, it takes a while for this to stick because in a moment when the opportunity gets so big or so interesting or something, there's until these behaviors are embedded, until it's like 
wrung out of the firm. We have con we sell, we have conversations instead of pitching and presenting. We're business people having business conversations. Until that becomes part of the culture, there's always that possibility that somebody's just going to lose their shit over an opportunity. And then it becomes infectious and everybody just starts behaving like children high on cotton candy. And I remember watching this thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to let the kids run around and do their thing. And um, as an impartial, an impartial, largely impartial third party observer, I thought this thing is never happening. They are never winning this deal. And I thought, we'll just, we'll talk about it when it's all over. So my point is, it's great that you had buy-in at the highest level and mm -hmm. It, it doesn't trickle down to the lower levels unless the people at the top levels are bought in. But have you, did you ever have that moment? Have you ever had that moment where your people are pushing back and saying, Julie, come on, we gotta, we just gotta do this once this one, please, please, please. Can I have some cotton candy? Definitely. <laughs> definitely. There haven't been times even I was lured in and we, you know, we would sit around, have these like special summit meetings and go, well, Blair wouldn't even say don't ever pitch. So right. we, we would, Never uh, say never. Several, right? So several times we have considered, do, you know, nobody had a sign, right, you know, it's etch it in stone. We didn't, we weren't asked to pledge that we wouldn't. We did that on our own. So we're allowed to break our own rules if we need to. Each time we just decided not to. And once I called you and we talked about doing skin in the game and how to turn it around and it ended up, I mean, I, I don't feel any regret about not doing that because I guess, of course, there are opportunities we don't get because we're not pitching and we might have won some, but we're built differently. So if you're built, it, it's almost harder if you're a sort of hybrid. We're built to not pitch. So it takes the question and the agony of decision making around it away. Because if you're then going to go, oh, okay, now we're going to have a pitch team. It upsets the balance of everything. We have the same people. We have, I mean, we have a lot more, but we have the, the people that were working on pitches are now working in a different way. We're investing in relationships. We're being more proactive, being better agency partners to our clients. So we're built now differently. And it, it was a long time coming. It's hard and long, but um, I, I think it would be harder to go back. But I wanted to ask you about what you think. What, what what do you hear are the biggest challenges for agencies? Well, you spoke to the fact that it, it's a cultural issue. So um, the larger the firm, the more, the greater the number of people who influence the culture. And then also thinking from the top down, like senior people play important roles, the harder it is to create that culture. If ownership is not bought in, it's really hard to make this happen. And as firms get larger, there are just a larger and larger number of people that you have to get buy-in, people who are prone to slippage, et cetera. So that's one of the problems is the larger the firm, the harder it is to do this. And how many people is across the pond? How many offices are you now? Like re real off or how many locations are you in? We're 40 people over four locations, China, Singapore, US and UK. Gotcha. Okay. So 40 is still a manageable size and, you know, 140 it's getting tricky depending on the ownership structure. When you get to that, like above 75 and you get into the hundreds of people, that's where it gets really challenging. It doesn't make it impossible, but it's a longer slog. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I've worked with firms where you've got somebody whose job it is to write proposals. Well, our point of view is your proposal should be one page in length. So here you've got a, a person or even a team 
whose job is to respond to RFPs and language that we give to our clients that we'd like them to use in the sale is we don't typically respond to RFPs or ITTs, invitations to tender in the UK. Mm. But if you've got a machine built towards these things, then you've got to unbuild that machine. So that's another challenge. Another challenge is the personality profile of the senior people. You have to have, well, there are a few variables. One is affiliation. One is like your, your need to connect with others. If that's really high, it's really hard for you to push back on an established uh, procurement process. If your need for authority and respect is really high, it's a lot easier for you. So I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but there are elements of the personalities of the owners and the senior people And those personalities make it easier or difficult for them to do this. And the easier it is for them at the leadership level to do this, the easier it is or the more likely that those behaviors will trickle down to others. But if the if the senior people at the top can't do this, either for reasons of like interest or personality or other variables, then those below them aren't going to do it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Well, I want to go back to that, but I want I guess something else you said made me think of the question I get a lot, which is, so you don't pitch, so what do you do? Yeah, isn't that a great question? I love that question because, you know, you don't pitch. It's like, uh, I often say, win without pitching. It's like homeschooling. Homeschooling doesn't say what you do if you homeschool your kids. It just says what you don't do. You don't send them to school. And then there are all kinds of different ways and different philosophies and actually cliques of homeschoolers out there. So it's like, okay, well, how do you win business without pitching? Before, you know, I respond to that. What's your answer when you hear it? Yes. Well, first, I think maybe we should make clear to listeners that when we're talking about pitching, we're talking about giving creative ideas away for free, right? So we're not saying, because you mentioned the RFP. The first thing I say when people ask me what we do do, I say, what we don't do is put the phone down. It's a golden opportunity to build a relationship over a long time. So we don't expect that it might turn into that job then. Some of our long lasting clients now have come from not getting the first time when they came with a pitch and having these, the eyebrows raised, what you don't pitch, that's really interesting. That you, you right, right away we're evening the playing field and they have more respect for us and they see us as confident and competent And that just is, it's so valuable. So a lot of times they're brands that are too big, companies that are way too big for that person to thwart the the pitch process, but they remember us. And I'm pretty sure a lot more than they're going to remember all the other pitch losers in that project and all the other projects. So they've come back to us in other roles and in other companies, knowing that we don't pitch and saying, I have a way to get you in here. We're going to, here's something that I think you can do. We stick in their minds. So I guess what we don't do is, is, is put the phone down. And what we do do is, is know that it's going to take a lot longer. Good for you. People want what they can't have, but you're also playing the long game, right? I have the same attitude. Everybody's buying. The only variable is time. I'm a patient person. And I think that's the attitude you have to have. It's like, well, we're not going to get this one. And, you know, maybe you will. It, it's incredible the number of times that I've heard from our clients' firms like yours where they they push back and say, yeah, we're not going to participate. Thanks. Good luck. And then um, then the client comes back actually fairly quickly. They go through the pitch process and they go, none of these firms are any good. And it's not that none of these firms are any good. 
It's that your process is designed to take these like apples, oranges, and pomegranates and line them up and do an apples to apples comparison. Um, and then those firms that are participating are willingly through their compliance in that process are, are commodifying themselves. So they all end up looking quite similar. They're all following the client's lead on what they, what the clients ask for, et cetera. And often the client is left like unfulfilled by the process. And then they're thinking about that one firm that refused to do this. Maybe, maybe they're onto something. So what they come back to you, not a, not always, and, and, and not always immediately after, but sometimes it is immediately after. Have you ever encountered that? Um, immediately after I, we have encountered it not long after usually something's different. It wouldn't maybe not be that same exact project. Yeah. Buyer's remorse sticks around for about six months. So yeah. you hire the new firm, the client hires the new firm, the new firm screws up, which is an opportunity to create loyalty by fixing the problem. They don't fix the problem and the client's going, oh, I knew we never should have hired them. I, I know I've, I've written about this in one of my books. I've lived that story where a client hired us nervously and then we made a massive mistake early on. And uh, the, the client called me, the marketing director called me and said, the vice president is walking around the office saying, we never should have hired them. We never should have hired them. Um, so that buyer's remorse is always there. And those screw ups are opportunities to, I'm going off on a tangent, are opportunities to fix the mistakes and create long-term loyalty. And a lot of firms don't do that. And sometimes they don't even know that the client is unhappy. But in that roughly six month window after the agency is hired, there are a lot of opportunities for significant buyer's remorse on the client side to pile up. And if you're the interesting one who walked away, just might be thinking about you. I'll, I'll put words in your mouth here, Julie. You don't do this approach thinking, hanging up the phone, thinking, oh, they'll call us back, even though it does no. does happen. You're probably thinking, there's a good chance we'll hear from them one day. Definitely. And then we're in. We've got a, we have a lot more information about their problems, their business and their team, because we will have had several conversations to try to derail the pitch. And so we will have built a little relationship with this person. So that allows us to then do some just light but thorough business development. We can be sending them things and looking out for their business in the world. And that was sort of what I was saying before, we're spending time in a different way. Yeah. That person isn't, isn't busy account handling three pitches. He's, you know, doing the, the slow long haul with in a deep way with these people. So it does pay off, but it does take time. But I wonder, what do you know about the pitch positive pledge that came out in May? And what do you think? Uh, I read it when it came out, but I, if I'm fully honest, I don't remember the details of it. And that's, um, that's because I've seen a lot of them, uh, pretty much every jurisdiction in the world. And we work globally in English language, every jurisdiction in the world where the trade association has something like the pitch positive pledge. And you understand, it's easy to understand why they do it. I don't know how to say this delicately, but they're not worth anything. They don't accomplish anything. But at the same time, I understand why the organizations have to do it. Like clients don't look to agencies, trade associations for guidance on how to hire agencies. It's a free market, right? And these attempts by the trade associations to kind of consolidate on the sell practices on the selling side. Yeah, if the if all of the agencies adhere to it, then maybe there's some market power there, but that's not the case. I don't even know if that's fair to impose that on, 
on agencies. Here's how you should pitch. And I don't think it's reasonable to assume that a trade association is going to have a lot of sway with clients, although, you know, a little bit of sway and a little bit of public pressure via social media when you see egregious pitches, egregious behavior that can have an impact. But so I applaud the IPA. I applaud wouldn't be the right word. I understand why they're doing it. I understand they kind of have to do it. Um, it's not going to have any impact. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And um, But yeah, also, it's great that, that there's attention put on the fact that it's not healthy. But I mean, why is it that our industry is even like this? Like, isn't it madness? It just, it makes me think of uh, when I de-pledged my sorority in uh, college in America, like I, I, it really makes me think of this weird system. I was like a, a freshman year American university pledge, and you're pay, you're paying the sisterhood house to treat to, to humiliate you. You walk around willingly campus looking like an idiot. Our house, we had to wear a whistle. The first like month was silent. You couldn't be seen speaking to anybody out of on, on campus. And you're like your first time away from home like this. And then they, you know, they would just go once in a while. Go here's a here's your instructions. And that on that day, and this was so long ago, no yeah. cell phones yet. Uh, they said, be in your dorm rooms from five o'clock. Pack a bag with the following items: a toothbrush and a bathing suit. And you sit in your dorm room. The phone didn't ring till nine p.m. Um, the instruction was single file silent in the lobby. And we marched through Washington, D.C., where I was at George Washington University, to the reflecting pool in the, the mall yeah. by the yeah. Jefferson Memorial. And they lined us up around this disgusting, frothy pond. And, and we stood there. It's mind games. And we, we're standing there thinking of what's in our bag thinking we're sleeping here, we're, we're going to get in this water. And then I just remembered that I, I had just that morning reminded my parents to send the check again to renew the fees so that they could treat me like this. And it made me like, I had an audible chuckle. And then my, my peers, like they're staring at me like, oh my God, you're going to get in trouble or worse, get us in trouble. And that's when I just was, I had the most liberating moment ever. I just took a step back out of this neat line and said, I'm not doing this. And that is sort of like wow. how it feels to just That's exactly what you've blanket. done here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm sure no, m most of that stuff isn't legal anymore, Julie. I don't know if it's still done. <laughs> it was a different era. <laughs> I know. And we're only the female part of it. Yeah. Like all the stuff you saw in the movies that that was happening. I, I, you know, it was a very long time ago. I'm very old now, but, um, but yeah, that's illegal. But why are we allowed to work for free? And do you want, to tell your children that when they grow up, they can get really good at something and then go, if they work in advertising, they can go to work and then the, their whole life might change. All their plans might go out the window because a pitch might come in the door. Well, it's like nobody ever told us that we could say no. Right. You know, and there is something, so I, you know, I've been at this for 20 years. I understand the, the various reasons why pitching is highly ingrained in the client side and the agency side. And one of them is, you know, creativity is the ability to see. It's the ability to bring a novel perspective to a problem. Creative people, therefore, are drawn to solve the problem they have not previously solved before. They love solving new problems. 
So when something new and interesting and different comes in, they just get so emotionally invested in the sale. Like some of the most lucrative creative firms are run by people who are not creative, who come out of consulting or business or et cetera. Even, even back in, you know, when I worked in directly in the business 20, 30 years ago, I remember encountering design firms that were run by people who were not designers. They made bucket loads of money. And the other ones were just kind of just in this, I wouldn't call it downward spiral, but it was like they were just frantically chasing work, underpaid, et cetera. They had no power in the buy-sell relationship simply because they just didn't stand up for themselves. This like freedom to say no, it's like you don't have to go crazy over every opportunity. In fact, you like there's a, there's a simple rational kind of test of whether or not you should pursue an opportunity. If you can affect the buying process, if you can get behavioral concessions granted to you that are not granted to other firms under consideration, you should take that as a sign that you are seen as meaningfully different. If you cannot affect the buying process in a competitive pitch, your odds of winning, and I've done research to prove this, are less than one over N. So N being the number of firms under consideration. Let's say there are four firms under consideration. You think it's you know, one in four shot, 25%. Your odds of winning are less than one over N. I think they're closer to one over two N, like one in eight. As soon as you can affect the buying process a little bit, just a little bit, get concessions granted to you that are not granted to others, your odds of winning go to greater than one in two. And if you can significantly affect the buying process, you're pretty much guaranteed to win because the client's willingness to treat you differently is a sign of how differently they see you. So get behavioral proof that you are seen as different. If you do not, if you cannot get it, don't play those games. Play the games where you can get behavioral concessions granted to you. Now, you can go all the way and derail a pitch and not pitch. You can pitch with concessions, et cetera. So there is some middle ground there. But there's my point here is there's just a simple decision-making metric on whether or not you should pursue an opportunity. And that is asked to be treated differently, even a little concession like you come to us rather than we come to you in a meeting, something like that. Uh, access to information they're not sharing with others, access to senior decision makers when you're told access is not allowed, things like that. If you can get that, you should see that as an invitation to proceed, whether that means pitching or not, that's up to you. But we don't even apply those simple rubrics, those simple decision making uh, tools in a pitch. We get so excited. We do the kids on cotton candy thing. Oh, this is, could be transformative. I worked for a guy who was saying that for 20 years into the business. No, we need to take this piece of work for the portfolio. And I'd look at the portfolio and I'd think, this is one of the best design firms in the world. We don't, the portfolio does not need this piece. He's rationalizing this because he really wants it. But so I've gotten to know over the last couple of years um, more intimately procurement people, how they think, how they operate. And it's been fascinating. And I'll just say in shorthand is there's good procurement people and there's bad procurement people. And I'll quote Lee Holden, an author on pricing and selling, who says, 80% uh, of procurement people give the other 20% a bad name. And I think that's about right. I get a lot of questions when I talk about this. I feel that, you know, industry peers who are not, who are still pitching, there's a lot of curiosity, but also there's skepticism. And, you know, how are we going to break through if you're saying, you know, the pitch positive pledge, we, you know, we need to, or, you know, all the, the attempts to stop the pitch at the chemistry meeting, for example, they're feeling like they're not going to get a chance now. So, 
I guess the question for you is sort of what is the right time? Is there ever a good time to pitch? And what is that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you go to hell for pitching. I think the pitch is the, is the domain of the young upstart agency who doesn't have a shot, who doesn't have any, you know, they're the long shot, right? So if you're, if you're continually pitching, that means at worst, you see yourselves as a long shot in all these opportunities. And at best, you, uh, you see your ability to, to create value for your clients is no greater than that of the other firms under consideration. And like just that last statement, you, you built a business where it's like you, you feel deep in your bones. It's like, okay, well, we're, we're pretty good at this, whatever this is. But there are all these other firms who are just as good at it. To me, that's heartbreaking. And I understand when you get to the global ad agency size, that space, that's like you're in that domain. You have to differentiate yourself in other means that we won't get into here. And very few of them do it. But an independent firm like that just where you have, we talk about positioning the firm, but we're really, it's strategy, fundamental business strategy. Where are we going to play? How are we going to win? Right. And there's so many strategy creative firms out there. And that to me, that's heartbreaking, but that's changing. You know, a lot of the independents, they're very tightly niched now. Yeah, I guess you advocate this too, but I I really feel we've lived it over these five years. The most difficult part of stopping pitching back then was not having a clearer proposition. And that is like, if I guess that's, that's the key when people ask me, you know, what really helps do it is that, and it's just being able to not say, to not have to think, well, there's a million firms that are doing this. So it's like a, a numbers game. Yeah. When, when you can confidently say, we help companies like this solve problems like that. And when you can yeah. get to this place where you can say, you know, we are the best or among the best in the world of a small number of firms that help companies like this solve problems like that. Now the power dynamics change, right? So if you're an undifferentiated ad agency or other creative firm, the power is in the hands of the client. And that's one of the reasons you're forced to pitch. <clears throat> Doesn't speak to why you continue to love to pitch, um, but it's one of the reasons you're forced to pitch. It's because the, mm-hmm. the client has all the power and the, the power is not, the source of their power is not their money. It's in their choice, the alternatives that they see in their mind to hiring you. So... You know, yeah. Step one is build a meaningfully differentiated firm. It's hard to do that if you're a network-owned global ad agency. Your differentiation is your global ad agency. Um, but if you're an independent firm and it's an owner-operated firm or you have the ability to, to shape this firm into whatever you want, then do that. Shape it into something that is meaningfully different, that is more focused on a narrower set of problems or a narrower market or a combination of those two things i guess yeah because so i i asked a few people in my team what would you ask blair what would you want to know and a couple of them said you know what what you wanted both said what would you say about the future and you know you're if people stop pitching what happens to your disruptive business model and if the question is where will there be a world where we never pitch i think the answer is no but it's a world where it's getting easier to not pitch and more and more firms. My guess is there are many hundreds of firms who just don't pitch and maybe maybe even thousands. And I think the trend is going to continue in that direction. But I also, I think as the mass of, the, of firms become more fragmented and more specialized in both the discipline and the market, 
um, these new approaches are easily adopted in those firms. And then on the other side, you've got like the global ad agencies, et cetera. I don't know that they'll ever be free of a pitch. I mean, some could do it. I don't want to name names, but there's one that's, that could do it now, but they're, they're, the window is small and closing. Um, maybe we can talk about that another day. Okay. So let's summarize with, I mean, the whole thing has been this, but let's get sort of advice for agencies. Um, what, what would you say is like your top three bits of advice for agencies? And I mean, I can say in my experience, I think I just said it, I think it is about having a focused proposition and that has taken years to hone for us. And also having you know, really senior buy-in, great training and um, you know, all, being willing to play the long game and build the relationships over time. But what, what would you say? Well, those are three great ones. Um, I would add to it that uh, I think of it as a game theoretical approach. The standard agency approach to new business is enter as many competitions as possible, win your fair share. It's a numbers game. It's not a numbers game. I would right. say to game the system by entering as many competitions as you can very early on in those competitions. I and mean, what I mean by that is engage very early on, try to get the rules change in your behavior, in your favor through behavioral concessions, and then play the games where you get behavioral concessions granted to you. Walk away from the other ones because you're not going to win those other ones. I mean, you might, but the numbers don't add up, right? The amount you spend on a pitch and your odds of winning, they're long shots. So play the games where you know the odds are in your favor. And even just that simple step, you'll build a more lucrative business, much lower cost of sale. Good ones. Good ones. Okay. Now we're supposed to wrap up. Is there anything that we did not cover? Yeah, there's lots. I guess. <laughs> so much that we didn't cover. Yeah, that, that's not the right question. <laughs> that brings this episode of CEO Matters to a close. A huge thank you, Blair, for joining me today. And thanks everyone for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share across social media and tag the drum and listen for the next episode.